0: The notorious mass murder at Villisca, Iowa is a famous one nowadays. The popularity of ghost hunting TV shows, for good or for ill, catapulting the murder to the forefront of notorious unsolved American crimes. In part one of this multi-part episode, I examined the four crimes canonically assigned to the serial killer who slew the Moore family from throughout 1911 and 1912. This episode will examine the most famous of his crimes, that of Velisca itself, as well as the lengthy aftermath of the case. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is the second installment of Death Rides the Rails. The city government of Liska, Iowa, had been engaged in a feud with the power company, and as a result, the streetlights were turned out that night. It was into this darkness that churchgoers emerged after the evening Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church in town. Among the churchgoers were Josiah Moore, better known as JB, or Joe, his wife Sarah, their four children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary, also known as Catherine, seven-year-old Arthur, and five-year-old Paul. As well, Mr. Moore had phoned the Joseph Stillinger household to inquire whether 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and her sister, eight-year-old Ina, could stay the night so that they didn't have to walk the darkened streets on their own. The next day, Monday, June 10th, 1912, a neighbor of the Moors named Mary Peckham went about her mourning in the usual way. She began to take notice of what she called an odd stillness at the Moore house at around 7 a.m. At the very least, JB and Sarah were usually up and around by this time of the morning. All the blinds were drawn, and the livestock they had in the backyard were in need of tending. She knocked at the door a few times, and getting no answer, she tried it, but it was locked. She let their chickens out into the yard, and after waiting a bit and still noticing no activity, She called Joe Moore's brother, Ross. He called over to the local John Deere store, which was owned by his brother, and an employee of the store who answered confirmed that his boss hadn't made it in yet. The employee, whose name was Ed Selly, was himself concerned because he couldn't undertake the sales trips he needed to that day until Joe Moore came in. He went over to the house and took care of some of the rest of the animals and said he would send someone over to milk the cows. Ed had left and gone back to work, and soon Ross Moore came over. Mrs. Peckle met him and said that she had been almost constantly trying to rouse someone in the home since she had called him. He had a set of keys to the house, though, and unlocked the door to let himself inside. Anyone familiar with the story, which is probably most people listening to this podcast, knows what he found. He looked over the parlor and kitchen and saw nothing amiss. And then walked into a small downstairs bedroom. His eyes slowly growing accustomed to the darkness, for the more home had no electricity, and combined with the drawn blinds, the gro- the gloom was oppressive. He eventually saw two bodies lying on the bed, bed sheets pulled up over their head. Blood stained the bedclothes. He ran out and told Mrs. Peckham to call the police. Within a few moments, the town marshal Hank Horton had arrived, accompanied by Ed Selly. Ed, however, took one look in the downstairs bedroom and fled back outside, leaving Horton to investigate the rest of the darkened home on his own. He opened the curtains downstairs, letting some light in, and that done, he noticed some other things. A large axe leaned against one wall, and a mirrored nightstand was covered with a piece of dark clothing, which later proved to be a dress of Sarah's. Horton gradually made his way upstairs, and discovered Joe and Sarah Moore dead in one room, and in the second upstairs bedroom, he found the bodies of all four children. All had met the same end, their heads bashed in, and all had been covered with bedclothes, like the bodies downstairs were. Horton made his way out of the plain unassuming home that had become a slaughterhouse to go find Dr. J. Clark Cooper, a local surgeon. By the time he and the doctor returned, Dr. E.C. Huff and the minister of the Presbyterian Church had also arrived. Ed selly for his part, also called another doctor, F.S. Williams. Together, Horton, Cooper, Huff, Williams, and Reverend Ewing made their way through the house, identifying bodies and performing the unenviable task of examining the gory remains. Also discovered during the second walkthrough were two oil lamps, their glass chimneys removed, and found elsewhere in the same room. These lamps were found on the floor at the end of Joe and Sarah's bed upstairs and of Lena and Ina's bed downstairs. A piece of chain was found lying on the kitchen floor. And on the kitchen table there was an uneaten plate of food as well as a pan of bloody water where apparently the axe and the killer's hands had been washed. The bodies were not all removed from the house until 2 a.m. and moved to a makeshift morgue at the fire station in town a group of bloodhounds from Beatrice, Nebraska, belonging to a man named Elver, Elmer Nofsinger were summoned. Nofsinger and his hounds arrived around 9 o'clock that evening. Given the axe to retrieve a scent from, the hounds immediately ran off the porch, west along 2nd Street, north on 4th Avenue, and then west again to the edge of Liska. Then they turned south again and moved off in the direction of the Nodaway River. Here they stopped. The next day, the hounds were brought back to the house and given a scent from a downstairs closet where it was believed that the killer may have been waiting for his chance to strike. Even though the scent was from a different area, they followed the exact same route after leaving the house. Search parties fanned out along the river in search of any clues, but nothing was ever found. And here, most of the facts of the murder established, the controversies begin. One thing that must be remembered and a fact that played its part in almost all of the previously discussed cases as well, was the modern image of a secured and carefully catalogued crime scene was non-existent in days past. It was extremely common for the general public to just wander into a crime scene, quite often handling or sometimes even stealing evidence from the crime scene. Freelance photographers could also just wander into a crime scene and take photographs at will. This state of affairs could have led the hounds on a false trail, as well as clouding any later theories and investigation. This still occurred years later. In fact, in 1947, some journalists had tramped over the Black Dahlia crime scene in Los Angeles before police had even arrived. Unlike some criminal cases in which it is weeks or even months before a formal coroner's inquest was held, the inquest at Velisca was held on June 11th, the very next day. The county coroner, Dr. A. L. Lindquist, assembled his jury and called several witnesses. Most of the information gathered in the inquest had all, has already been stated in the reconstruction of the discovery of the murders, although there were some interesting tidbits that emerged. One discrepancy, somewhat, maybe, maybe it's just poor wording or a modernized reading different conclusions into the words, are statements by the doctors as to the identification of the bodies found downstairs, the bodies of the Stillinger girls. Although the identification of the bodies as Lena and Ina Stillinger appears to have been made more or less immediately by Horton and Reverend Ewing, who knew that the Stillingers had left church with the Moors, the doctors gave statements that seemed to make the identifications problematic. According to Dr. Cooper, All we could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the cover with the blood on the pillows, and I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body, some entire stranger, and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all. Neither did any of the people, the others that were then with me. Dr. Williams, too, said of the scene in the downstairs bedroom, from their appearances, one was a big woman and a little girl. Now, The bodies were were admittedly in a poor condition, difficult if not impossible to identify at a mere glance. But one is forced to wonder why Dr. Cooper specifies the bodies were a stranger and a child, when, to me at least, the separate terms indicate that he didn't think the stranger was a child. And Williams' testimony is even more problematic, as he specifies a big woman and a child, and then goes on to describe two bodies of children. Is it at all likely that the body of a 12-year-old girl would in any circumstance be described as a big woman? Various news reports carried several different identifications of who it had been downstairs. First, they were apparently identified as a 41-year-old Mrs. Van Gilder and her 16-year-old daughter Faye. The child's name would identify the woman as having been suspected of being Mary Van Gilder, which was an elder sister of Sarah Moore. How would a 12-year-old be mistaken for a 41-year-old? Then the two bodies were identified as 18-year-old Edith Stillinger and 14-year-old Blanche Stillinger. These were indeed the names of two of the other Stillinger children, but obviously two who were still alive. So we're getting closer to their actual ages and names, but still wrong. Finally, the papers settled on their being being Lena and Ina, but then by a few months later, it was back to being Edith and Blanche. Lena's nightdress was pushed up and her underwear had been removed, so obviously there was a question of rape or molestation. Williams replied, I looked to see if there was any possible, might have been, attempted intercourse or rape or something, but I did not notice any. So although once again there was none, if we remember the last episode, recall the evidence of a moral pervert, at the Colorado Springs Massacre, the rumors that Georgia Dawson had been raped at Monmouth, and the possibility also mentioned that Pauline Showman's corpse was posed in a sexual manner in Ellsworth. One of the other witnesses called was a man named Edward H. Landers. An out-of-towner, he was visiting his mother a few houses away from the Moors. He stated that he went to bed that night at about 9 o'clock, And shortly before falling asleep, or probably around eleven o'clock, he decided he heard some sorts of sounds, like one boy hooting for another outside. Landers said that it that it occurred at regular intervals. The next morning, after he had heard about the murders, he conceded the sounds could have been a woman moaning in pain, as the Moors didn't even leave the church until about nine thirty and it would have taken a little while to walk to their home from there, they would seem to have been killed shortly after they got home. Or maybe the noises Landers heard weren't even connected with the deaths. Another interesting fact is that Hank Horton, Dr. Cooper, and Dr. Williams were all asked about the presence of chloroform. There had been a speculation that chloroform had been used to incapacitate the sleepers in the case of the showman murders in Ellsworth. All three testified that there was no unusual or chemical smell noted. A bird alone expert or fingerprint advocate, as discussed in the last episode, M.W. McClaury, had been summoned from Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, who it was said was extremely drunk when he arrived in town, and had been told to stay overnight at a hotel to sober up. He said that he examined the crime scene in detail for fingerprints although he later went on to claim that he found nothing of any real use. He later stated that, in his view, The man who did that knew the family, knew their habits, and the arrangement of the home. Everything goes to show that he first murdered the two Stillinger girls downstairs, and then he went up and killed the Moore family on the second floor. No one not familiar with the house could have done the work without awakening someone, especially since the Stillinger girls were sleeping in a strange apartment. A few members of the family had been suspected, it is true. A Sam Moyer, a brother-in-law of Joe Moore, was one. Moyer was apparently a shiftless, lazy individual prone to gambling. Moore and Moyer had clashed on several occasions, since Joe and his brothers were providing all financial support to their sister. On one occasion, Joe Moore supposedly wrote an angry letter to Moyer, who at that time had deserted his wife and was living in Oregon. There was a rumor that on one occasion, the two had had a physical altercation. A Lee Van Gilder, an ex-husband of a supposedly murdered Mary Van Gilder, was questioned. He and Joe Moore were in conflict quite often also. He was known to have mistreated Mary, and a fight between Lee and Joe led to the two's having gotten divorced. As this theory seems to have emerged soon after the murders, I wonder if the misidentification of the body as that of Mary Van Gilder, had led to the thinking that Lee had done the deed. Or alternately, whether someone picked up on the story that Lee was suspected and misremembered it as Mary's having been killed. At this point, who knows. Rumor also had it that a John Van Gilder, apparently this is actually a reference to Roy Van Gilder, Lee's father, missing for 13 years, was seen around Villisca. However, this lead went nowhere. Another man who initially came under suspicion was a man from Chicago named M.J. Corey. He was a curtain salesman and had called on Mrs. Moore earlier on the day of the murders, as well as several other neighborhood residents. I wonder if Corey was the strange man that Faye Van Gilder testified about at the inquest, who had asked where the Moore home was and who Sarah Moore said she had seen before. I also wonder if this was the man that Edward Landers said had visited his mother's home on the night of the murders. At any rate, Corey ended up having no connection to the crimes. The murders had made a huge impact on the town. In the days immediately following the discovery of the bodies, doors were locked and nobody walked the streets after dark. Lights were kept burning all night. In fact, it was commonplace for two or more families to occupy a single house come nightfall. This state of things continued for months. The state provided a reward of $500, which many locals felt was very insufficient to the crime. Also, townspeople raised thousands of dollars in additional reward funds. And as per usual, with the reward came the tips on virtually countless individuals, most of whom were definitively proven to have nothing to do with the case. The state also contracted the Burns Detective Agency, which, is one of the private detec- which was one of the private detective firms around in those days, a cousin of the more famous Pinkertons, to help the local constabulary investigate the crime. The Burns a- Agency assigned C.W. Toby to the case. But Toby soon came into conflict with local police when, acting on a tip provided by night watchman Michael Kearns, they contacted police in Chicago, asking them to apprehend a man named Otto Matusback. Matusback was a man accosted and questioned by Kearns at the Veliska train station who fled from the night watchman. Toby learned of the arrest only after Matusback was brought to Veliska. It was initially thought by the Burns investigator that, quote, This arrest may straighten out affairs here, but such was not to be the case. Matuspak turned out to be merely a traveler returning to Chicago from a job in Missouri and had stopped in Velisca for only a few moments to change trains. In September, Toby was reassigned to take charge of the Burns Agency Chicago office and at that time, another detective named W.S. Gordon was assigned the Velisca case. Gordon apparently had a good relationship with the Velisca police. On September 16th, there was a brief glimmer of hope. Well, perhaps hope is an unfortunate word to use in this situation, but Detective Gordon thought that some lead on the Velisco case might be gained when a farmer named Martin Thompson and his family were slain at their home in near Council Bluffs in a house replete with drawn curtains and a bowl of bloody water. But when Gordon arrived at the Thompson household... He was crestfallen when he was handed a letter which had been sent to two other children of the family, Dora and Christina, a letter which read in part, I hope you will excuse your papa for what there has been done, but I can't stand it any longer, but now you are left alone. The Thompson killings were merely a murder-suicide, and not related to the Villisca case at all. There was an attempt to connect the Villisca slaying, as well as the previous string of murders, with the 1910 slaying in Guilford, Missouri, where Oda Hubble, his wife Clara, and their children Jesse and Wilton were slain, and their house set afire. However, the Hubbles had been shot rather than bludgeoned, and those attempting to make the connection apparently overlooked the fact that the man responsible, a habitual offender named Hezekiah Rasco, was already in custody. A similar situation developed about two weeks later, when a family in Payson, Illinois, near Quincy, was found murdered by an axe in the remains of their burned-out home. Remember the evidences at Colorado Springs that the killer might have attempted to burn the scene of the crime? The bodies were identified quickly as the residents, Charles Von Schmidt, his wife Matilda, and his daughter Blanche, as well as a schoolteacher named Emma Kempen, who had been boarding with the Fonschmids. The Attorney General of Iowa asked the Burns agency to assign someone to investigate whether the Fonschmidt murders were connected to those in Villisca, and as he had investigated the Villisca murders previously, CW Toby went to Quincy. Another detective from the Kirk from the Kirk agency, Thomas O'Leary, had previously been engaged in investigations in Villisca hired by the county. The finger of suspicion quickly fell on a son, Ray Fonschmidt, who had money troubles and stood to gain an inheritance on his family's passing. For his part, O'Leary examined the evidence and agreed quickly that Ray was, indeed, the killer. Remember how I said that crime scenes were notoriously quote-unquote open in years past? Well, sometimes that actually helped cases rather than hindered them. In the Fonschmidt case, a man and his daughter looking over the burned-out house found the remains of a clock, which, bizarrely, seemed to have wires wrapped around it. It was presumed by the prosecution that this was some sort of explosive device, and one which Ray, with extensive experience in the use of dynamite and other explosives, would know how to make. However, Toby allowed himself to be used by Schmidt's defense team as an expert witness, meant to cast doubt on Ray's guilt and throw responsibility on the unknown Midwest axe killer. This he attempted to do, but his attempts were futile, and Ray was convicted of the murder. But his lawyers soon appealed, and with Toby's testimony, he managed to get himself acquitted this time. The relationship between the state of Iowa and the Burns Agency soured. Over time, they were repaired. But the Velisca case stalled. Nothing new surfaced in the way of evidence. By April 1914, Gordon, too, had left, and another Burns detective, James N. Wilkerson, came to town. Wilkerson was far less ethical than Gordon or Toby, and would set fire to the powder keg of fear that had been simmering in the town since the morning the bodies were found. Let's backtrack a bit. Frank Jones was a local businessman and a state senator, Joe Moore had once worked for Jones, in 1908, leaving his employ to manage the local store of the John Deere Company. It was also rumored that Moore had had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Dona. It was said in town that Jones had a grudge against Joe Moore, and that was brought up early in the case, but Jones denied that he had any sort of ill feelings toward the man. Sure, he was a bit angry at first when Moore left to work for the competition, but he wasn't the sort to hold a grudge. As a prominent citizen, he was also engaged with the investigation into the crime and contributed much to the reward fund. In any case, the unscrupulous Wilkerson, having heard the rumors that Jones had something to do with the murders, immediately fixated on the wealthy, well-to-do, I hesitate to even call him a suspect, actually. A crime writer named Jack Boyle, employed in Kansas City, came to Velisca to write a story. He came into contact with Wilkerson. Another aside. On the night of July 5th, 1914, an axe murder, probably unconnected with the Midwest killings, but really, who knows, took place in Blue Island, Illinois. An elderly man named Jacob Mislik, his wife, his married but divorced daughter Martha Mansfield, and her daughter, were found murdered with an axe. Similarly to the Fonschmitz, they were in the practice of taking on boarders. One boarder, a man, said to be Russian, though the m- name sounds more Polish to me, named Kazimir Arzuski, had paid undue attentions to Mrs. Manfield. He had left the home and was sought in the murders. Another suspect who came up in investigation was Galasko and Chevy, a Bulgarian who had confessed to the bludgeoning decapitation and dismemberment of Jenny Cleghorn on Chicago's South Side in 1910 and Chevy was acquitted or otherwise freed. The deputy police chief of Chicago, Herman Schutler, said that since freed, and Chevy had been, quote, writing me incoherent letters containing threats and boasts. One had been received postmarked Colorado only days before the Burnham Wayne murders there. Attempts were made to connect and Chevy with the entire string of Midwest murders. But soon, the press fixated on William Mansfield, the ex-husband of Martha Mansfield. He had previously done time in Leavenworth Prison. He was found in Kansas City, and an investigation opened in an attempt to link him to the crimes in Paola and Villisca, as well as two apparently unrelated murders in Aurora, Illinois. Well, unconnected to the Midwest Axe murders, though, in my opinion, likely to each other. That aside, Wilkerson and Boyle embarked on what was nominally an investigation, but was really more of a con directed at Frank Jones. First, Boyle was to question the businessman in his hotel room, a conversation Wilkerson would record with his dictaphone. But Jones insisted on meeting in his store instead, so Boyle withdrew the request. Then another reporter named Bell came to Frank Jones and said he had gained some reports from the Burns Agency which painted him in a far from desirable light. He offered to sell Jones the reports and ensure that no investigation would be pursued for a total of $25,000, which is about $700,000 today. But again, Jones declined. Then Blue Island happened, and Wilkerson said he could place William Mansfield and Villisca on the night of the murders. He couldn't, mostly because Mansfield hadn't been there, but that wasn't going to stop him. Then he took the bad blood between Joe Moore and Frank Jones due to business matters, as well as the affair with Dona, and claimed that Frank and Albert Jones, which, is Dona's, which was Dona's husband, had hired William Mansfield to murder Joe Moore and his family. In 1916, while Frank Jones was running for re-election to the state senate, someone, in hindsight, I think we know very well who, mailed out flyers to hundreds of residents with pictures of Jones and Mansfield and detailing the entire conspiracy theory that Wilkerson had developed. Jones denounced the libel and stated his intention to sue whoever mailed the flyers, but nothing was ever proved in that regard. But after that incident took place, the story was out. Newspapers all over the country began to run with it, though it was fake news, to use a phrase from today's media. William Mansfield ended up being arrested. He claimed to have been roughed up by Burns' detectives under the direction of Wilkerson. The grand jury trying Mansfield, a puppet court of Wilkerson's, sought indictments of both Mansfield and another man they declined to name, though I think we know very well who it was. But unsurprisingly, the trial didn't go Wilkerson's way. Witnesses didn't testify as the detective had instructed them, And others, like a Marshalltown woman named Vina Tompkins, who told of a huge murder gang, told stories the jury found ludicrous. Mansfield was acquitted of all charges and released on July 21st. But true to form, Wilkerson merely claimed that the grand jury had obviously been fixed by Frank Jones. The town by this time was split between those who believed Wilkerson and thought that Jones was responsible for the murders and those who felt that the murderer was someone not native to the town. In response to a series of moves by Frank Jones to take legal action against the detective, Wilkerson organized a public meeting of his supporters. But the attempt backfired and Wilkerson managed to convert the slander suit into a full-blown assault on the reputation of both Frank and Albert Jones. The jury ruled in the favor of the Burns agency, and most of the town, if not the nation, was convinced that Frank Jones did, indeed, have something to hide. The Attorney General's office had long since stopped paying for the Burns detective. He had charged that the state was aiding and abetting Frank Jones in getting away with murder. Instead, funds for the public paid for Wilkerson's services. Even some of the witnesses began changing their stories to support the case against Jones. Edward Landers' mother suddenly recalled that the Curtain salesman who had been hanging around the neighborhood, well, it was Albert Jones all along. Her son backed up her story, saying that he had seen Albert Jones entering the Moore house at about 8.30 p.m. Ed's wife, Edith, however, who had been with Ed at the time of the supposed sighting, saw nothing. By early 1917, there were real fears that the two Joneses might might be lynched. Another grand jury was formed, looking into Frank Jones as a result of the outcome of the slander suit. But Frank Jones had hired his own detective, who went undercover and infiltrated Wilkerson's organization. No better word for it than that. This detective provided Jones with documentation Wilkerson, in 1915, attempted to sabotage a rape and murder case in Kansas. A woman named Nellie Byers had been the victim, and the perpetrator, a man named Archibald Sweet, was caught relatively quickly. Wilkerson met with Sweet, and the two engaged in a conspiracy to attempt to frame another man and claim a reward. As it turns out, Sweet was convicted despite Wilkerson's best efforts. James Burns, Chief of the Burns Agency, faced charges of illegal surveillance, and a Florida judge had labeled the Burns Agency a public menace. In another setback, Wilkerson himself was successfully prosecuted by William Mansfield due to the assault on him that Wilkerson had orchestrated upon his arrest. Due to the documents that Frank Jones had obtained and presented, including a rundown of how the court had been deceived the first time around, this court case like the slander trial, began to shift focus. What had begun as an investigation of Jones was now becoming an investigation of Wilkerson. Wilkerson was held in contempt of court for refusing to answer questions, and his previous case was eviscerated for the deception that it was. Finally, in April 1917, James Wilkerson was fired by the Burns Agency. But this wasn't the end of Wilkerson. His list of enemies now grew to include the Attorney General, Hor- Horace Havner. Prohibited from holding his meetings by a newly passed Iowa law, he merely moved the site of his meetings across a state line in ne- into Nebraska. His support network now called themselves the Citizens' Investigative Committee and were dedicated to proving, as Wilkerson had been when still in a law enforcement role, that the state government was conspiring to protect Frank Jones from prosecution. Realizing that the case against Jones and William Mansfield was clearly manufactured, Attorney General Havner looked to prosecute a traveling preacher who had acquired a reputation as an eccentric, if not a pervert. Reverend L.G.J. Kelly Kelly had been in Villisca at the time of the murders. Actually, he had been at the church service that the Moors attended before they were killed. I'm not going to detail the trials and case against Reverend Kelly here. He's probably one of the primary suspects, and I'll deal with suspects in a later episode. All we'll discuss here is that Wilkerson inserted himself into the Kelly prosecution. He took it upon himself to tell Kelly, before he had been arrested, that he was being sought for the murders. He moved Kelly to Illinois to escape prosecution, for a little while anyway, and had Kelly's belongings shipped to Illinois from St. Louis signing his name on the receipt as F.F. Jones. Relentless in his assault, he was now going to claim that Jones was the architect of the Kelly prosecution, meant only to to deflect the finger of guilt away from himself. He had also went back to Alice Willard, a woman he had used as a witness in the grand jury that was turned against him. He got her to testify under oath that Attorney General Havner had threatened her into retracting her claims against Frank Jones, This caused Havner to be arrested on the first day of the Kelly trial. The Kelly trial was soon thrown out and retried. On the second trial, he was acquitted. Now a full-time resident of Aliska, Wilkerson began to campaign for county attorney. Other members of the Citizens' Investigative Committee were running for sheriff and another as county supervisor. Wilkerson actually managed to be elected attorney, despite not even having a license to practice law in Iowa. Both other supporters won their campaigns as well. Finally, the end of Wilkerson came in June 1918. A young Villisca man named Warren Knoll was found shot to death at a train station in Albia, Iowa. Knoll had taken some unauthorized crime scene photographs on the day of the killings, and he was engaged in negotiations to sell them to Wilkerson. He was receiving payoffs from Wilkerson to sell him the prints, but eventually he got greedy, as usually tends to happen in these situations. Noel had been well insured at the time of his death, well enough, it turns out, to make his widow a wealthy woman. I know what you're thinking, but it's unclear if Noel was murdered. It certainly appeared to be a suicide. But in any case, May Knoll and James Wilkerson soon took a trip to Otumwa, Iowa, and registered at a local hotel in separate rooms. State investigators in Otumwa happened to see Wilkerson and Mrs. Knoll together. As Wilkerson was married, he was in violation of anti-adultery laws. These investigators told Horace Havner, and the case was investigated further, upon which it was discovered that the two were actually staying in the same room. Wilkerson's attorneyship, if that's the right word, was dropped, Most of his supporters abandoned him, and though he was acquitted when finally tried, his reputation was shot. Wilkerson was finally finished. In a somewhat unexpected turn of events, he finally purchased the mummy of a man who resembled John Wilkes Booth and toured the Midwest with it. Perhaps that's not really unexpected. The mummy, obviously, was not John Wilkes Booth, and though it's unclear if Wilkerson knew that, It seems to make sense for an unscrupulous individual like him to become associated with a circus. As to the Blue Island murders which William Mansfield was supposedly guilty of, Casimir Arzuski, the former boarder infatuated with Mrs. Mansfield, eventually confessed to the crime, as well as to the slaying in Veliska and that in Paola, Kansas. He made no mention of the Ellsworth, Monmouth, or Colorado Springs slangs. Arazuki's confession is dubious in my mind, as Blue Island, Velisca, and Paola were the only slangs of the series that Wilkerson had claimed Mansfield was guilty of. In my mind, it's likely that Arazuki merely saw a news account of that and simply confessed to the same crimes that Mansfield was tried for. Velisca, of course, famously remains unsolved. The house is preserved as a grisly tourist attraction, and the Historical Society still has the axe, which was found in the house that fateful morning. (laughs) And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.